I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corin Podcast. Every week on the Corin Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. We were shocked and saddened to learn last week of the passing of our teacher, mentor and friend, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. While we're working on an episode in tribute for him, this episode was recorded before his passing. Everyone at Koran Publishers and the Koran Podcast joins in mourning the loss of Rabbi Sachs and wish his wife, children, grandchildren and countless students our sincerest condolences. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to the Koran Podcast after our break for the Chagim. And we're delighted to be joining you this week with an excellent episode. Alex, tell us what we can look forward to today. We have a really fantastic episode lined up this week. Um, We spoke to a couple of people who are at the forefront of creating inclusive Jewish communities for people with disabilities. Um, We were really fortunate to be able to speak to Rabbi Benji Leibowitz of Yachad, uh, who's also the editor of the Koran Yachad Siddur, a special siddur for people with disabilities, um, as well as Rabbi Carmen Samuels, the author of Dreams Never Dreamed, um, and also the president and founder of Shalva. Um, Shalva, of course, rose to prominence a couple of years ago when the Shalva band's audition to represent Israel in the Eurovision Song Contest went viral. Um, so without further ado, let's get started. We are delighted to be joined by Rabbi Dr. Benji Leibowitz, who is director of the Morris Sandelbaum Fellowship Program at Yachad and writer and editor for the new Koren Yachad Siddur. Rabbi Dr. Leibowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. For those uh, who might not be so familiar with Yachad, could you give us a brief insight into Yachad's work? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so Yachad, it's uh, under the umbrella of the Orthodox Union. It's an international nonprofit organization. Uh, they span across America. Uh, they're in Canada. They're in Eretz Israel. Um, and uh, they provide a whole array of, of different services for individuals with developmental disabilities and also the community at large. Um, you know, I think they're probably most well known for their for their uh, you know, leisurely activities, their Shabbatonium, their, their fun programming that involve students of different ages, uh, elementary and middle school students for the younger uh, Yachad participants, high school students for the teenage age uh, Yachad participants, and college age students for the adults. Um, but they also have all sorts of different services as well, uh, sibling workshops, parent workshops. Um, they, they have all sorts of vocational programs where they, they train individuals with, with special needs, varying forms of special, special needs uh, in different life skills and how to kind of enter into the workforce. They set them up with different job placements, um, monitor them and really uh, ensure life success, which is really a tremendous undertaking. You know, they have they have schools. Uh, they have they have services for individuals that are hard of hearing, pr- you know, producing on a regular basis, all forms of different ways they could access learning Torah and being being a part of the shul in different ways. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving a lot of things out, but it's a really pretty, pretty, pretty tremendous undertaking on, on the part of Yachad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, so the where kind of we've been privileged to partner with Yachad is on on the Yachad Siddur. Um, and a lot of what you mentioned in terms of the other programs, I think we'll be touching on a little bit later for sure, um, based on kind of the topic of this week's episode. But 
just in terms of sort of the the more recent Koran Yachad partnership, can you tell us a little bit about the Koran Yachad Siddur? How did it come about? Um, and, you know, what were the things that were identified that that sort of led to the creation of the Siddur? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's actually a, a nice little background story, uh, kind of how it how it took off took off the ground and kind of uh, formed. Um, I, I used to I wore many many hats uh, uh, across my my time working with Yachad. Uh, at one point, I used to work in the New York office overseeing uh, several of their uh, national chapters chapters. Uh, you know, Dallas, Houston, Cleveland, Detroit, to name a few of them. And uh, I also was involved with the camps for many, many years, still, still today, uh, directing them, particularly Camp Morasha. They have a, a nice size Yachad program over there. And there was one particular Yachad participant there. His name was Jacob Gross, who uh, I, I knew through multiple avenues. I knew him through, uh, he was a, a camper at Camp Morasha and also a, a very active participant in Detroit Yachad. And uh, I... For, for years at this point, you know, we still we still speak on the phone on a weekly basis and, uh, you know, keep up with each other's lives. And uh, his father, Ethan Gross, one day gave me a phone call while working in the office, um, suggesting an idea that the moment I heard it, my eyes just lit up. It, it made so much sense. You know, we, we you know, we had spoken about before that that Jacob sometimes uh, struggled with tefillah in general. You know, he was at the time around 15, 16 years old. Um, maybe a drop older, maybe more like 17 years old. Um, and he, uh, you know, he, he went into shul wanting a daven with everybody else that was there. He was very socially aware in that sense. And he carried what his father made for him, a photostat, um, you know, bound sitter with different pages from different sederim, mostly children's sederim, uh, in order to keep up with everybody. And, uh, you know, he, he was starting to get to that point. He was getting a little bit older where it was a little bit embarrassing um, to some degree, holding, you know, what looked like, uh, you know, a disheveled children's sitter with patched up pieces from here and there. And, uh, you know, he, he really wanted to use something a little bit more uh, mature looking. But uh, most of the sederm that were out on the market um, were a little bit too, too difficult for him to navigate. They were, they were the, the wording, both, you know, obviously the Hebrew, but certainly the English as well, um, was, was, was dense and sometimes a little bit archaic sounding. Um, you know, which is understandable, right? It's it's translating uh, mostly to Hillam, which is uh, very poetic and uh, not the easiest of of, of Hebrew language. Um, and uh, he, he found himself just generally very lost and frustrated when it came to tefillah. And his father was asking if there's any way that Yachad would would potentially be interested in pioneering creating a sitter. And the moment he said that, you know, the lights again they kind of went off because. You know, I had been around the block with Yachad for, for a while. I'd been on many, many Shabbatones in many community, communities across America and Israel as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been in the camps. I've seen many, many individuals varying ages that really struggled with tefillah. And, uh, you know, usually we, we try to go different approaches in terms of how to simplify what's there and focusing on different sections. This was like a totally out of the box way of kind of, of, of approaching it. And, uh, you know, I told him I loved the idea. It would, it would be something that would require a, a larger conversation with other uh, members of, of the Yachad organization. But uh, I certainly would want to follow up. So, you know, we hung up the phone that day. I had a conversation a couple of moments later with the, then the director of Yachad. His name is Dr. Jeff Lichman, who almost immediately, he didn't, he didn't require any convincing. I remember I went into his office and he said, I love it. Let's do it. And that was literally how the whole project kind of got started. It was all based on uh, this guy, Ethan Gross from Detroit, recognizing the needs of his son, Jacob Gross, 
and uh, you know a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, momentum and, and uh, excitement built you know within the or yeah, that organization. We, we immediately kind of put together a group, started trying to map out what the sitter would look like, and it did take a, quite some time to develop it because we weren't working off of any prior rubrics or anything of that nature. You know, this is really something building from the ground up. You know, we. We kept the, the, the Hebrew text, obviously, right? When you look in the Siddur, it's the same Hebrew text that anybody, you know, who, who's davening, uh, you know, kind of an Orthodox uh, prayer, they, they're using the same Siddur. So it's accessible to, to, to anybody that, uh, that is used to davening. But we tried to open up the doors for not just, you know, Jacob, but for a whole array of different uh, individuals with varying forms of special needs to be able to access tefillah and be a part of the community in that way. That was kind of how it how it got off the ground. And in terms of, I guess, for those who haven't seen it yet, um, and hopefully we'll see soon, um, what kind of features are included in the Siddur that address those issues that you or or Ethan and Jacob felt that they that was sort of mi- kind of missing in what was out there already? Sure, sure, yeah. So, so I will say, and I, I give uh, you know Ethan Gross a lot of credit for it. He, his one his one thing that he really asked for in putting together this this, this Siddur was that we allowed Jacob to be a part of it. He really, Jacob really wanted to be a part of it. He's a, he's a very, he's a go-getter kind of a guy. And uh, he wanted to be a part of it. And we wanted him to be a part of it, to be, you know, quite frank. So, so we did. And that's, you know, he came to one or two of our meetings. Uh, he would call in, you know, he's the one who really kept the whole project moving. He would call me almost every other week just saying, so what's the progress? What are you up to? What do you have for me? And, uh, you know, he really, uh, it, was very, it was very nice to kind of see that kind of involvement. But uh, so a lot of the things that are in there were things that were somewhat specific to him. But we also did some trials and in the camp settings, and, and we wanted to get a sense of what the needs were for other people as well. So some of the things that are incorporated in the Siddur, again, it's the same Hebrew text that's there. The, the actual font size of both the Hebrew and English are a little bit larger, makes it a little bit easier to, uh, to read. Um, there's a little bit more spacing in between the lines, again, makes it a little bit easier on the eyes. Uh, there are discrete icons placed throughout the sitter um, that indicate to the to the reader uh, when a, when an action is going to be coming up. So, you know, right before modim or or any other place, but in Eleni, right before you bow, uh, there's a little icon that shows a little individual bowing. Uh, they'll have some, you know, it tells you when to beat your chest, when you're supposed to stand, when you're supposed to sit, when you're supposed to uh, kiss your your tzitzits. Things of that nature are discreetly put in there. Um, just, just that way the reader who's going along with it, they could be attuned to it and know when those things are coming up. Um, probably most, most apparent when you're looking at the sitter though is what we call the conceptual translation. And uh, that, that I think is really like the big, big change in the sitter in that we, we, we try to stick to the words of, you know, the Hebrew words and, and do a translation as much as possible. We, we, that was generally our guideline, of course. But the, the goal in writing the English was to make it an easy read that you know was conceptual in nature. That uh, that it, it covered the main points that are trying to be conveyed by the Hebrew text, rather than focusing specifically on a word-to-word uh, translation. Um, and uh, you know, th- this is the part that obviously took a lot of research and a lot of writing and editing and trying you know trials and errors, having uh, varying varying ages of individuals with special needs trying out the sitter and seeing, you know, asking questions afterwards. What did this mean to you? Uh, you know, what did you gain from this? Just to see if it really worked. I, I wouldn't say it was a scientific study, but it was uh, certainly something to work off of a little bit and get a little bit of feedback as we were going through the program. Um, and, uh, you know, those were all certainly uh, fundamental and important components to it. Um, I, I guess, you know, 
one one major piece of it though is the outside of the sitter at all times. Um, you know, it, it's supposed to replicate that of a of, of any other Koran sitter that's out there, right? It, it's not doesn't have cartoons in there or anything juvenile of that nature. No no bubble letters or anything like that. Uh, you know, we we were able to use color coding and other other. Um, little tools along those lines in order to make the sitter easy on the eyes and easy to navigate. The commentaries that are there uh, are not just there to tell you something interesting about the words, you know, the words of the tefillah to, you know, to add on a dimension in that sense. It's really just meant to explain fundamental concepts, like what is Mashiach? You know, what does it mean that we're, we're davening for Mashiach? So that, that's what's explained in the commentaries. And again, they're all color-coded, so they're easy to, uh, to navigate to. And obviously the sitter is still fairly new, but what have been the responses? I guess, first of all, what was the responses from Ethan and uh, and from Jacob? And I guess also other responses so far to the sitter. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, Jacob's remarks were incredible. I, I, I think I, I was on the phone with him for around an hour after it came out. He was so excited telling me about every part that he liked. He told me about the parts that need to be fixed up for the next edition too, <laughs> for sure. But uh, overall, he was uh, he was very very excited about the sitter. Uh, you know, he loves the fact that that his name is in there. He really was a part of it, and uh, you know, rightfully it's placed in there as well. Um, you know, Ethan Gross, I think as well. He was very very excited about it, and he also he, he took a very major role in 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 the sitter as well. You know, uh, gathering a lot of the funds for it, and uh, you know, helping let people know about it um, in in that sense. Um, and uh, in general, the the it's been received incredibly well for, from my standpoint, right? So I'm not not a part of the sales. I'm not the one who's distributing the sederim, but just just from sitting in my home here in New Jersey, uh, you know, I, I've gotten so many you know emails and phone calls, and sometimes just from the the you know maybe the what seems like the strangest of places. I, I've got I got a phone call from uh, from from a, from a man who lives in San Francisco. Say, you know, asking questions about it, saying that his shul, it's not necessarily the most scholarly of shuls, but, you know, it's very committed um, gentlemen that really want to be able to uh, be a part of tefillah. And uh, this, this sitter might be exactly what they're looking for. We went through it. He purchased it. He called me back afterwards and saying that this has completely transformed, you know, the 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 way that they uh, they, they go about their tefillah, which is incredible. You know, uh, I have, uh, you know, personally, I've, uh, you know, we have, we have, fam- I have family members that that, you know, from different walks of life, religiously, some of them haven't uh, picked up a sitter in, in, in many years in general. And, uh, you know, when they heard that I wrote a sitter, they picked it up and they said that, you know, they've never had this kind of experience before. It's really not just because I'm the one who wrote it, but just also because, uh, you know, it's just, it's very inviting. It allows you to 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 really engage the words, engage the text, and it makes it more of a, a personal, meaningful uh, experience while going through it. Um, so yeah, no, the responses have been great. We've really been getting a lot of phone calls from different shuls. Uh, the hope is that soon we'll get into some of the schools and camps as well, because uh, you know while it's certainly geared towards individuals with developmental disabilities of varying forms, what, what we're quickly learning is that it's really meaningful for anybody who's looking to improve their tefillah, anyone who's looking to, uh, who, you know, whether you don't have the strongest of, of Hebrew backgrounds, that's not, not something you, you were necessarily taught in yeshiva day schools, uh, or you were taught it, but there wasn't a high focus on tefillah, which, uh, you know, cer- certainly does seem to be the case for, for, for many people. Um, you know, this, this, this sitter is really meant to kind of simplify and explain, again, the fundamental concepts that, that make up what it is that we're, we're praying for. Um, I guess moving on a little bit from the sitter, but the, the sitter is obviously certainly a part of this as well, in terms of the topic that we're looking at today about 
building inclusive Jewish communities. So in your in your view, what would you say it means to build an inclusive Jewish community? So uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, ultimately the goal uh, is to build like an atmosphere, right? A Jewish culture that emanates from and is therefore built upon Torah values. As a Torah value, I think having mutual respect for others within the community is integral, you know, completely uh, an integral component. Uh, to achieve this, I believe it's somewhat multidimensional. Uh, you know, there are at least two major components that uh, kind of come to my mind. Uh, you know, what's done externally and what's done internally. You know, so on the external side of things, you know, there's certainly the accessibility component, right? Making shuls, kosher restaurants, uh, youth hangouts, uh, built with ramps. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've certainly been to shuls before where, you know, you, you sometimes see, and it's not necessarily just individuals with developmental disabilities, but sometimes, uh, you know, an older gentleman who's, who has to use a wheelchair or something of that nature where the bima is like three stairs up in order to get there. And what might seem like, okay, but it, it looks nice. And, uh, you know, there, there's perhaps even a halachic uh, purpose for, for why it's elevated above, you know, the rest of the, uh, the, the platforms, the floor of the shul. Um, it certainly presents some challenges for those who, you know, who have difficulties with mobility. Um, so just kind of that awareness and, and trying to understand, you know, if, if you have a shul that it's up on the upper floor and there's no elevator to get there as an example. So it's, it's not intentional, obviously, but it, it's, it's blocking off some members, uh, you know, of the Jewish community from participating in, in tefillah. You know, so th those are some of the external components, you know, having ha handicapped parking spots, handicapped bathrooms, uh, kind of what we spoke about a little bit before with the sidurim, having large print sidurim or sidurim that, that make it feel a little bit more uh, inviting and accessible. Um, you know, I, I've been to, to shuls before where, you know, they sometimes even have uh, learning programs that are, that are not, not for children, but are a little bit more simplified, that are inviting for individuals with you know, varying forms of special needs, or they, they have chavrusas where they, they ask individuals with special needs to join in the, the Torah learning and maybe modifying what it is that they're learning, but encouraging them and inviting them to be a part of the tefillah. I think these are all the, you know, great examples of external things that could be taking place in a shul, but that's kind of just setting the table, you know, to invite the guests, but then we also have to kind of welcome them in as well, right? There's the internal component too, and uh, I think that that's that's the harder part in my mind. It's kind of, it's creating a mindset. It's a, a perspective and a belief that, you know, we're all Jews. We're all made in the image of Hashem, right? right? That, that every single person should be able to look out and say the whole world was created for me. Um, you know, and uh, we have to train ourselves to be able to look upon others and, and see our commonalities and see, see the strengths in other people rather than, you know, kind of looking at what stands out as the differences, the things that set us apart. And, uh, you know, it's something that I think conceptually everyone can kind of understand, but to, to really be able to train ourselves to think in that way is a huge undertaking that uh, doesn't happen overnight. It's, but the first step is certainly to become, you know, put in our conscious awareness so that way we, we could at least know what it is that we're striving for. Um, I think through that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to uh, develop a little bit of inclusiveness within the Jewish community. Yeah. I mean, obviously you touched on this just now in terms of talking about um, Torah values of mutual respect, but can you just, I guess, expand on it a little bit in terms of um, how inclusion might be seen as a Torah or Jewish value? Sure, sure. So, you know, I, I think the root of inclusion, right, kind of, we touched on it before, but the root of inclusion is kind of that, that ability to view and treat others with dignity, right, to, to treat them with a, a common respect, 
that we would, you know, expect others to treat us, treat us with. Um, you know, and, and look, we're looking for their strengths, we're looking to empower them, right? Again, rather than focusing on the differences, we're, we're looking at the similarities and the commonalities that kind of draw us together. Um, you know, just as a, as a slight example, and, uh, you know, I don't think it's coincidental that we look at so many of the Jewish leaders uh, in, in the Torah, you know, we have Moshe Rabbeinu, who had difficulty with speech, we had Yitzchak, who, you know, he, he was blind, he, 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 his, his vision went out as he got a little bit older, uh, Yaakov, after wrestling with the Sar Shalesav, right, with the, uh, you know, he, he, he became limp, he injured his leg, um, you know, it, it, it's, I don't think it's just by chance that so many of these leaders that, that we refer to had some, what, what today, you know, maybe some people might deem as imperfections. Yet, they, these were the people that are our role models. These are the people that, that we teach our children to look up to as role models. These are people that uh, they, were, they were so rock solid in their Yiddishkeit, and those external components were almost unimportant, secondary. You know, we've all learned the stories about you know, how Moshe Rabbeinu, right, with the, with the mala, who put the coals in front of him and the gold, and he touched the coals and it burned his lips. We've learned these stories, but in the end of the day, is, is that how we define Moshe Rabbeinu? No, we understand Moshe Rabbeinu as this, as this great, you know, unchanging, unwavering leader who, uh, you know, even with the challenges that, that, that were presented with him and the many, many challenges, you know, we, we learned all, all through Sefer Shemos um, and, and beyond, of course, uh, all these different challenges that came in Moshe's direction, he was able to overcome one, one, you know, one step at a time because his his connection with the Kaddish Baruch Hu and his that internal voice of telling him what to do was unwavering. Um, the speech, you know, impediment of some sort that was there is really like a, it's in the periphery. It's 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 an important feature that that explains who Moshe Rabbeinu was on the external sense, but doesn't describe and define him as an intrinsic individual, right? And and I think that's that's. The way, right? That's a little bit what we were referring to before. That's that's the way we have to kind of train ourselves to be able to view other members of Klal Yisrael. We have to be able to, you know, yes, there are external differences among different people. Um, there's also internal differences among other, you know, different people. But uh, it's important to be able to recognize that that we're all kind of on the same mission here in life, right? We're all part of Klal Yisrael. We're all we're all we're all davening to the same Makadosh Baruch Hu That's that's up there. Um, you know, also in Pirkei Avos, uh, you know, maybe to give a little bit more of a, a textual uh, component, Pirkei Avos, when describing the, fri- the five primary Talmidim of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, uh, Rabbi Eliezer shares, and I hope I have the, the wording correct here, I don't have it in front of me, but Yehi chavod chavercha chaviv alecha kishalach, right, that the honor of your friend should be as dear to you, should be as important to you as your own kavod. And there, both the Rambam and the Rabbi Yon explain that one must treat his fellow with respect. And, add, and they add to that, not just treating them with respect, but they also have to work so hard that other people also treat that individual with respect. You know, certainly, you know, you, when you look at Perk Evelos and you recognize that these giants, right, these, these Tanayim, these Amarayim, these giants uh, taught so much Torah throughout their entire lives. That's what embodied their entire lives. If, if this is what we're boiling down as the main thing that Rabbi Eliezer is going to be known for, Clearly, it's an important thing for us to, to keep in our minds as well. Um, and of course, you know, there's, there's the Hasselarecha Kamocha, you know, the Adat, the Rabbi Akiva made famously, and I think uh, it was Yeshiva Boys Choir, and I forget who, who sings the song, but the uh, Zeklal Gadol V'Torah. Um, you know, and, and I think uh, if I could just share like a, a small story, um, just, uh, just to give a little bit of an idea of a personification of some of these ideas. So I, I was very fortunate 
growing up in the, in the my, my older part of, of my youth, uh, young adulthood, I guess you could say, uh, my parents' shul uh, led Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Michael Taubis, uh, Zichron Mordechai and Tinek. So Rabbi Michael Taubis, he's an incredible gadol. He, he's, he, his Torah knowledge is, knowledge is unbelievable, but what even exceeds his Torah knowledge is, is his demeanor, his, his anivus, his, his ability to, to really treat every single person he encounters with the utmost respect, right? I mean, Michael Tabas, he's a Rosh Hashiva at YU, he's uh, the Menahel of MTA, he, uh, he's a prolific writer, uh, he's the, the Rav of the Shul, as I mentioned before. This is, this is a, a big gadol who just, when you speak with him, he gives you so much respect. And in his shul, it happens to be, there are uh, multiple members there with varying forms of special needs, and it's just so natural the way he incorporates them into tefillah. It's really, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to watch. Um, and he's not just doing it as, as an act of chesed. If you were to ask him, he would say, there's no chesed here, right? Chesed means you're doing, it's, it's a kindness. It's something that's like above and beyond. He's saying, this is what it should be. I'm finding, you know, a particular individual that has Down syndrome. He, he has so many capabilities and he really plays to his strengths. You know, this is a boy who sets up shalashudas. He, he chooses who's going to dive in a don olam. He uh, takes out all the, uh, the, the candle and the basamnum when it comes to Havdalah time. He really has an integral role in the shul, so much so that when he's not there, everyone's like kind of looking around saying, oh, who's going to do this? Who's going to? But Rabbi Tabas really streamlines it. And he's not the only one. There are other people in the shul as well that, uh, you know, that that's kind of the idea that we're looking for over here. It's, it's that we're looking for people's strengths and trying to see how we can make them be a part and a parcel of our Jewish community, because the more we recognize their strengths and see what they can contribute, the more we're going to find that it, it's, it's really meaningful what they're adding. It's not us being kind to them. It's, it's, it's us including them for the sake of everybody that's involved. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Rabbi Talbot is an amazing example of someone in a sort of a leadership position. Um, but I guess for all, all individuals, anyone listening, um, what kind of things can people do on an individual level, I guess, both in terms of what you were saying of, on an external level and an internal level, what things can we do to help build those inclusive communities and institutions? Yeah, so so that that's also a, a fantastic question. I, I think you know some of the external things that I that I noted before. Um, so these are things that that we any any person who who wanted to take a little bit of a leadership role could really help bring these things to their communities. Um, you know, bringing uh, you know having a chavrusa with an individual with special needs, somebody who. You know, it, it might be a, a slower pace learning, or it might be learning something that's a little bit more uh, basic than something that you're used to, to learning. At the same time, it's still meaningful learning. And uh, what I what I have always found in my many years of of learning with with individuals with special needs of varying forms, with with children of different ages, is that sometimes you know when you break things down to its simplest core, that's when you're challenged the most. When you're trying to explain things that you kind of take for granted, and we're so used to kind of like getting into the, the Gemara of what does the Rashba say on this? And what does the Ritva say? Sometimes, you know, just breaking it down and understanding at the core of, you know, what is, what is the Mishnah saying? Like, what, what is that opinion? Where is it coming from? And why is it being said? Uh, it could also be very, very uh, meaningful. And uh, sometimes, you know, being able to explain things on, on, on that simple level and being able to engage other people in a meaningful way. Again, it's not, it's not chesed. It's, it's, it's mutually beneficial. It's, it's something that uh, I think we could all learn and grow from. 
Um, I think, I think, you know, shuls and restaurants, you know, I've been to a fair share of restaurants that have employed individuals with special needs and it's beautiful when it's seen. I wish it was seen more, you know, I wish it was seen more that you have uh, individuals with special needs that are, that are being trained vocational skills about how to set tables and, you know, uh, clean off the tables and how to escort people to their seats and say thank you so much for, for coming. We hope you come back again at the very end. I, I, I've seen it before. Again, it's not something that I see very often. I'm not a big restaurant goer to begin with, uh, but those times that I have gone to a restaurant, it's not something that I see too often. Uh, again, in shuls, you know, we brought the, the example before Rabbi Taubas, who again, I think is a phenomenal example of somebody who really embodies this, this concept of, of social inclusion in the, the Jewish community. Um, you know, I, I've been to shuls, you know, many shuls across, across the US and I, and I don't think anybody's doing anything um, you know, intentionally, like, you know, excluding anybody or anything of that nature. There's no ill intention here, but I think it's, it's more, the more we can kind of be exposed to the challenges that are out there and the different avenues that we could, could consider and think about in bringing more individuals with special needs into our schools and making them feel welcome. And, and we want them to be a part of, uh, you know, a part of our, our social gatherings and our learning environment and, uh, you know, our, our chesed missions and things of that nature. I think the more successful we'll be, and it really comes kind of like what you mentioned before. It's not just the external things. It's really, yeah, you have to change the mindset. We have to work on the internal component, and I think the external component will follow after. Um, and and that's that's the bigger challenge. And you know, again, Yachad is is one organization that, that's out there that's really working very hard to educate. You know, they have uh, they're going into all the different schools and high schools out there trying to not missionize, not to, not, to, uh, not to preach, but to kind of open up people's eyes and let them see other perspectives and spend time with an individual with special needs and recognize that this is a person with real feelings, real emotions, real thoughts, real wants and desires. And yeah, they, okay, they also happen to have autism. They also happen to have cerebral palsy. That's a secondary thing, right? Kind of like we were talking about before with Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, it, it's a mindset that I, that I think, uh, you know, it, conceptually we could all understand. And it's something that the hope is that we could all kind of be able to put ourselves in those shoes and, and try it out and uh, hopefully grow from that experience. Um, and I guess looking at how things have been over the last couple of months or so, what kind of unique challenges have arisen um, for you, for Yachad um, over the past year um, because of COVID-19? So yeah, this, is, this has certainly been a very difficult year, I think for many people um, and across many different, uh, many different areas of life. Um, certainly for uh, individuals with special needs, um, you know, it, it's been very difficult because a lot of the social programming has been, uh, you know, pretty severely impacted. Uh, you know, for many of many of our our Yachad participants, all again, all across the U.S., Canada, and Israel, they so look forward to these Shabbatonim and uh, these these events, whether they be learning in nature or they be uh, leisurely, you know, in nature. That that's their that's their social outlets. Those are the people that that often they're they're hanging out with, right? Some many many of our participants they don't have their own phones, they don't have their own computers, they're not connected in the in the virtual world the way that uh, you know you and I might be. Um, so for them, it's it's they really cherish those opportunities to be able to meet up with with friends regardless of their age and spend time with them. And uh, due to the due to the distancing restrictions, I think it's been a little bit of a difficulty for them. And uh, there's certainly, you know, Yachat has been up and about 
creating all these different kinds of virtual programs, virtual buddies, and uh, they put together a whole uh, summer program this past summer that, you know, everyone was wearing masks and socially distanced, and they, they really put it up on the spot, which was pre pretty amazing. They were able to pull that together in multiple locations across the New York, New Jersey area, but that's just localized in the New York, New Jersey area, right? And unfortunately, uh, you know, there are Jewish individuals with special needs uh, all over, all over, not just the country, but all over the world that, uh, that, that I, I think right now are really feeling the, the social impacts. And as much as we're able to engage them socially, so let them feel welcome and so let them feel loved, I think that that, that goes a very, very long way. Um, so, you know, just a phone call, the opportunity to speak with them, I think uh, is invaluable. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the, the work that Yachad is doing is really incredible. And I'm sure over the past couple of months, it's been even more important. Um, and it's been a real privilege, I think, from a Korean perspective to have a little part in, the, in working together with Yachad on the Korean Yachad Siddur. And I'll say that, you know, when, when they announced the Siddur being released, a couple of friends messaged me and said, this is so amazing that you're doing this. And I had to be like, I, I wish I could say this was me. So I'm passing that on to you. Uh, I leave what it's saying. It's so amazing that you've done it. It's been a real privilege for us to uh, to partner as Corin with with Yachad on it. Um, and thank you for joining us today, sharing your thoughts on the topic. Um, and yeah, looking forward to more future partnerships together on the Sitter and other things as well. Thank you so much. And just before we sign off, I just I really have to give my my incredible indebted thankness to both Corin and OU Press, who are absolutely incredible throughout this entire project. Um, you know, I worked together with, with uh, Michael Adler. He was a, a colleague of mine who also helped in the, the writing and editing of the sitter. And we both felt throughout this entire project that we just felt incredibly supported that anytime, uh, you know, again, this, there was no rubric for the sitter prior to us going into this project. And anytime we said, oh, we have this crazy idea, we're gonna totally change the format of this. And this is gonna be over here and it's gonna be color coded and bigger fonts and changing this and changing that. It, it was always accepted besimcha. It was always said, yeah, if you think that's what's going to work, then let's do it. You know, whatever could be, could be done to help the, uh, you know, the, the individuals with special needs population. So everyone was was so open-minded and so easy easygoing working with it. And uh, again, OU Press were incredible with the editing throughout. Uh, really, uh, we went through a bunch of drafts in the beginning as we were trying to get our, our leggings, trying to figure out how to, how to kind of get off the ground. So just an incredible, large thank you to, to both OU Press and Koren throughout this entire process. Thank you so much again for joining us. Of course, thank you. Sorry to interrupt, but before we start our interview with Rabbi Kalman Samuels, uh, we wanted to reach out to you. We're planning a special Q&A episode of the Koren podcast coming up later this season, but we need your help. Um, if there's anything you've ever wanted to know about Koren Publishers, Mugged Books, the Toby Press, why we do things a certain way, uh, how we come to certain decisions, um, or anything about the publishing process or the company that we all know and love, uh, please feel free to send in your questions. You can send them to podcast at karenpub.com uh, or you can send them to us on social media at Karen Publishers. And if your question gets featured on our episode in a few weeks' time, you'll be entered into a very special prize draw. Let's get back to it. We are incredibly fortunate to be joined now by Rabbi Kalman Samuels, who is the founder and president of Shalva. Um, Rabbi Samuels, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Let's jump straight into it. Um, for any of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Shalva, who haven't read your book, Dreams Never Dreamed, uh, could you just give us a very brief introduction uh, into not only the work that you do, uh, but how you and your wife, Malki, came to found Shalva? My pleasure. Story begins in Vancouver, Canada, where I was born and raised, a child of the 60s, in a non-religious family and my English name is K-E-R-R-Y Carey. It's still on my Canadian passport. And uh, coming out of high school, I had a lot going for me in the sense that I had academic and sports scholarships to university. And my goal was to study and become a professor of Western civilization. Uh, to that end, after my first year of university, I traveled, I planned to travel to France to study. And my mother asked me to visit Israel for two weeks to uh, see the country and visit some distant relatives. I did that and I did what I so enjoyed. I saw the beaches, I was in a kibbutz, I saw the wall, etc. And uh, two weeks was sufficient to make me realize that my Sunday school Jewish education was not really getting to the root of my Jewish identity. And I decided I would take the summer and study and understand it better. And by the end of the summer, I realized that it wasn't quite enough. And in spite of the fact that my father who was a lawyer, was quite upset that I was not taking my scholarships at that time. Uh, I decided I'm taking a year and I'll really figure this out. By the end of that year, I had become religious and had decided that what I really wanted to do was to become a rabbi, more of the academic, but a rabbi. I pursued that and actually did get my rabbinical ordination in 1977. In the interim, I married my dear wife, Malki, and we began having our own family. We had a beautiful girl, beautiful boy, and that young boy, his name is Yossi, and at the age of 11 months, Malki took him to a local public health center to receive a one of his vaccinations. Unbeknown to us and unbeknown to the public, uh, the Ministry of Health was having severe problems with two batches of that vaccine. Seemingly they were tainted and a number of children were being injured. Yossi became one of them and he became blind, deaf and very hyperactive. Uh, and of course our young lives were flipped on their head couldn't get medical information because it was a political issue already for the public. And uh, we traveled to New York where my uncle was the head of orthopedics at Maimonides Hospital. And uh, we were introduced by him to several major doctors in the field. And that's when we learned that he would never see again. His optic nerve was atrophied. Uh, his hearing was damaged. And by the age of three, he had lost it all. And we stayed on in New York. I went into the computer field there and uh, we were there for almost five years. Yossi was at the finest school in the country at 59th and Lexington, uh, the lighthouse for the blind. And he improved in, in many ways, but there was no, nothing great to write home about. And we returned to Israel, but not before a, a visitor to my wife, who was a very important Rabbanit or Rebetzin in Jerusalem and knew Malki from Jerusalem, visited Malki at our home and in Brooklyn 
and said to her at the end of the conversation that, Malki, it's wonderful that you want to uh, raise your son at home, but it's not fair to your husband or to your other children because it's not a normal life living in plastic and not being able to put anything out because he was absolutely into everything. And Malki cried that night and said, God, I'm never taking Yossi out of the house. I, it's a gift from you. And if you ever decide to help our Yossi, I will dedicate my life to helping other mothers with their children with disabilities who I know are crying with me. We came back to Israel, enrolled Yossi in the deaf school in Jerusalem, and a teacher who was deaf herself put one palm at the age of eight, put one palm on a table, the other palm she fingerspelled the five symbols for the Hebrew letters Shin, Vav, Lamed, Chet, Nun, Shulchan, or table. And after days of this, Yossi lit up from ear to ear, and she had the smarts to know that he had just had his Helen Keller breakthrough, a breakthrough to communication. And Malki sat me down and said, it's payback time. And she knew exactly what she wanted to do in terms of programming. Uh, in the meantime, over the next two years, another extraordinary speech therapist in the school crawled into his mouth and taught him how to speak Hebrew synthetically. So now we had a child who could speak to us we could sign in the palm of his hand, and he turned out to be absolutely brilliant. Insatiable thirst for knowledge, and his knowledge grew from day to day. We quickly realized that without funding, there was nothing to ever help Malki with. I could have dreams, but it wasn't going to happen. And I wrote a lot of letters, and nobody responded. And several years later, I was in Vancouver, my father was ill, and while I was there, I met one of my father's friends who I knew well, and we got up to talking, I shared the dream, and he said, you know what, I'm gonna help you and your wife out. And he gave us the initial funding to rent a garden apartment, a duplex with five children in the after-school program, which was the first program, and it was, we thought, amazing. And quite honestly, it was overwhelming. I was in charge of computers at a big corporation. I worked for my living. Malki ran it with two staff and some volunteers. And she bussed them home every night. And she cooked them a hot meal before she bussed them home. And she created that bridge between what the government provided and what she could provide to ensure that parents and children have a quality life where the parents could study or work, the siblings could come home and do homework with mommy and daddy, and when the child with a disability came home, everybody was prepared to receive him with love. What we didn't anticipate is that God seems to have a great sense of humor. This program began to grow in ways that we could not have imagined. People, there were no cell phones. People came, knocked at my door at all hours. I have a child. I have a nephew. I have, my neighbor has a child that they desperately need help to keep their family together. And so Shalva, which means peace of mind, and is something that precisely what we wanted to provide for parents and for siblings, for the entire family, uh, continued to grow. In the 
mid-90s, it opened in 1990. In the mid-90s, we began building a proper center. We completed that in 1998. It was opened, called Beit Nachshon, in memory of Nachshon Waxman, and Hashem Yikom Damo. And uh, the numbers grew. It grew so much that in 2005, programs ran around the clock, uh, and the government turned to me and said, there are 400 people waiting in line, and we always took in first come, first serve from whichever sector the young child came from. So we have the entire spectrum of Israeli society, and there were no fees. If someone wanted to help, they could always donate, but it was first come, first serve. And uh, the government came to me and said, look, we got, you got hundreds of kids waiting to get in. If we give you a big piece of land, would you build a larger center? And I actually said no, but they insisted that I come see the land. So I went to see it. And to my absolute surprise, they were offering seven acres of land on a very difficult topography. Nevertheless, seven acres of land in the heart of Jerusalem, next to the Sheretzedek Medical Center, and 500 yards from Mount Herzl. I said, Malki, you got to come and see it. She did. And we both agreed that it would not be a crime to fail, but it would be a crime not to attempt to take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to build a center of this stature for people with disabilities. So we did, and it became extremely challenging. And at the end of the day, we opened a magnificent facility of 220,000 square feet known as the Shalva National Center. And it is on 12 floors with every floor being more beautiful and with nicer facilities than the next, serving 1,000 youngsters every day from mothers who come in with their babies for a me and my mommy program to get mommy back on her feet, uh, to uh, preschools, daycare centers, and then the flagship program, the after-school program, followed by respite programs overnight, which is totally unique, where every night of the week, different children sleep over, and each child sleeps the same night each week with his friends. What it means to mommy is if it's a Monday night, from Monday morning until Tuesday night, when that child returns the next day from Shalva, mommy and daddy and the family have two days off and an opportunity to keep and put their lives together in whatever way works for them. I guess I'm talking too much, guys. It's that's really great, um, and obviously, uh, I, I would definitely recommend to any of our listeners first of all to come and see the center, which is really incredible in Jerusalem, um, and also I'm sure we'll mention at the end as well. But for, for for I guess more details about some of the stories that you mentioned, to obviously read your book. Um, but I wanted to ask something you didn't, I guess, mention for the end of the story is where where's Yossi at now today. Yossi today is 44, he just turned 44. He doesn't see, he doesn't hear, and he has not been able to walk for the last 25 years. And so he has some very severe challenges. That has never stopped him. Um, he has always dreamt and somehow found a way to make those dreams come true. 
He dreamed of meeting the President of the United States, and he met somebody who visited Shalva, who he understood could possibly help him, and President George Bush hosted him in 2007 at the White House. Uh, he wanted to meet the Prime Minister of England. He's very much a political animal. There's nothing he doesn't know. Although he can't read from the internet necessarily, he's always got somebody with him who is showing him and, and not showing him. There's always somebody with him who is sharing, you know, incredible depth of news and other issues. So yes, he met the Prime Minister of England. He dreamed of uh, visiting Volvo because as a young child, he learned to identify every car by the door handle. Volvo was his favorite, and uh, indeed Volvo invited him out, and I was with him in Sweden for an extraordinary, extraordinary visit. And he was he's always got something fascinating to say. We were in an enormous, enormous uh, facility where Volvos are being built, and the heads of Volvo were all there. They, of course, published it very well in Swedish, what they were doing for this child. And Yossi stopped and says, I have an announcement to make. I want to thank the Swedish people for all they did for the Jewish nation during the years of the Holocaust. And of course, he was speaking Hebrew and I was translating, but it was extraordinary to see the response of these directors of Volvo, many of whom broke out into tears. And, and that's basically Yossi always having his finger on a point. Yossi wanted to be a sommelier. He has an incredible sense of smell. When his brothers would open up a can of Coke as a young child in the next room, he would say, I want a Coke too. He smelled the wafting of the Coke into the air. And uh, he felt that smell would enable him to be a good sommelier. He was very right because the basis of smell, as we all know when we have a cold, basis of taste, as we all know when we have a cold, is smell. He was trained by the finest in Israel and over two years. And uh, in the last year and a half, two years now, he has produced two wines of his own, one white, one red, called Yossi, Braille instructions on the bottle. And it was being sold in the duty-free at Ben-Gurion Airport. Uh, and hopefully the duty-frees will reopen and it will be sold again. But Yossi is traveling, living a life. And I think one of the most interesting travels he's had is uh, he visited Thailand. He had a dream of riding elephants. And uh, two of his friends took him to Thailand. And he actually rode an elephant. And the day he rode the elephant, I was hosting three American congressmen at the previous Shalva. And uh, I told my secretary, please don't bother me. Let me speak to them for 20 minutes and then I'll give them a tour. And two minutes in, there's a knock at the door and I open it, it's her. And she says to me, for God's sakes, look at your email. And I looked and I saw the picture of Yossi with his buddies, Yossi smiling. And I broke down because here was one more instance of Yossi dreaming the impossible dream and finding a way to make it come true. I shared this briefly with the congressmen and I said to them, my dear friends, 
there's every reason in the world for Yossi to stop dreaming. He can't see, he can't hear, he can't walk, yet he never does. And he always finds a way with God's help to make his dreams come true. We have to learn from Yossi uh, so that we, as we grow older, don't stop dreaming and don't let anyone get in the way of our dreams. And hopefully with God's help, we too will be able to realize our dreams. That, uh, that's quite beautiful. Um, <clears throat> the, I mean, the topic of, of uh, our episode this week is inclusion and building inclusive Jewish societies. Um, and the word shiluv or inclusion uh, is part of the official name for Shalva, uh, the Israel Association for Care and Inclusion of Persons with Disabilities. Um, but what does that word, what does inclusion, the concept, uh, mean to you in the context of uh, your life experiences uh, with Yossi, uh, for Shalva as an organization, what is inclusion for you? For me personally, I have been blessed to meet and come close to many, many people of completely divergent backgrounds and attitudes. And this has taught me to see the person rather than external trimmings and embrace my fellow man. And that for me is on a personal note, inclusion, that nobody is excluded. I see things only in terms of the degree to which some are kinder, good folks, and some in my books are a little bit less. But in terms of who they are and what they are, everybody is part and included in, in whatever I do. And that includes the people we serve that literally run the gamut from, from every kind of Israeli Jew to Israeli Christians, uh, Israeli Muslims. This, this place hums with love and everybody gets along. For Yossi, uh, we've never viewed him in any way other than just another child in our family. Every one of our children have different abilities and challenges. And clearly each must be cared for in his or her unique way to empower them on their journey. When we were sitting at a Shabbat meal and my youngest son was then probably about six years old, uh, the older brothers were talking about what kind of girl Yossi might be able to marry. When I say older, one was eight and one was nine. And, um, and one said, maybe he'll marry a blind girl. Another said, maybe he'll marry a deaf girl. And all of a sudden the younger son exploded with emotion and crying and said, why are you talking about Yossi marrying a blind or deaf girl? He's normal and he's going to marry a normal, healthy girl. And we, we realized that the reason he had the ability to say that is because that's the way he viewed him. Wherever we went, Yossi went. Yossi was part of everything. And he didn't understand why in the world his brother should not do anything that he or his brothers will do. So, you know, in terms of Yossi, he's completely had inclusion all the way through. Today, Yossi and his work show us how important work is for Yossi in terms of inclusion. This is his greatest pride. And when somebody asks him what he does, the first thing he will invariably say is that I work at the Route 6 toll road headquarters and I put together easy passes, which he does. And we came to realize 
how significant this is for Yossi. And I understand that when we talk about inclusion, it's a nice word and we all try, but until we have enabled a adult, a young adult with disabilities to find a way to contribute to society at whatever level and in any capacity they can, we have not fully fulfilled the mission of inclusion because work, it seems, for everybody breeds a very proud self-image. And this is our goal in everything we do today to help a youngster develop to his fullest capacity and be able to contribute in some way. If I may add, inclusion doesn't necessarily mean that all children with disabilities must be held to the same social, academic, or any other standard as, as other children. Inclusion simply means that their differences and their challenges are recognized and given the proper care and attention, all the while giving them and offering them the same opportunities of others so that they too can reach their maximum potential. Obviously, one of the highlights of the book uh, and the event that catapulted Shalva into the spotlight was the appearance of the Shalva band at Eurovision. Why was this so significant and what impact do you think it might have on Eurovision and perhaps other similar events? I can share with you that it has already had impact, that in this year's musical contest that has to be won in order to lead to Eurovision in Israel, there is, and I believe not one, but two individuals who are competing with disabilities. That was never on the table in the past. It was an impossibility. Today, it's reality. As most of us know, a young man with disabilities, one, America has talent this past year, they too had never had someone with disabilities competing. I don't know if they saw the Shalva band, but it's interesting that the year after the Shalva band, they suddenly had somebody you know, with a disability. The band members, there's eight of them, and each of them makes a living in their music, and each has a different disability, Down syndrome, Williams syndrome, um, several other things. And the band members represent all of the Shalva children in that we encourage all of them to discover their talents, to dream big. I mean, for them to get to the competition, let alone Eurovision, was beyond a big dream. And they should be able to achieve all that they can through dedicated work. Uh, the Shalva band, most importantly, has been respected and accepted as equals and contributing members to society. And that is really the fulfillment of Shalva's greater mission. The impact the band has had is beyond. And you know, when we see after Eurovision and they sang A Million Dreams from The Greatest Showman, and we see the BBC responding 10 minutes later with a major tweet and half a million people across Europe writing some kind of response to that tweet, every one of them in a, po in a positive note, you know that something's happening here. Um, in your role at Shalva, you've had a chance to travel to different Jewish communities around the world 
um, you know, all over the place over the, the last you know, 30 years. Um, what does it mean to build an inclusive Jewish community? Not just what does it mean on an individual level, but as a community, um, what does it mean to build uh, an inclusive Jewish community? Um, and what lessons do you think any Jewish communal institution, school, shul, community centre, whatever, uh, could learn from Shalva, um, just in terms of their provision or even their physical spaces, uh, what, what could be learned from the Jewish community at large from Shalva and the things that you've been building? It, you're quite correct that over the years I have visited centres in many countries, not just Jewish centres, but many other centers, whether that be, of course, in the US or Canada, Mexico, Siberia, I haven't visited, but we're in very close contact at this time, helping them establish a center of their own with the focus that they want from us being inclusion in Moscow, Argentina. And uh, the most important thing to remember that inclusion is not just a saying. Inclusion is about as you wish to say, human rights or civil rights. It's basically the civil rights of today, uh, trying to provide equal opportunities and participation of people with disabilities in all areas of life. Uh, and that's basic to building an inclusive community. And of course, that is the same and goes for a Jewish community. The hurdles in every community are going to be very different, but they all must be tackled with the same dignity and care. Uh, there's no way around it. The only way to create an inclusive community is to open it up, facilitate it, whether that be with physical abilities that didn't exist. It might be a ramp instead of stairs. It's about openness and accepting. And I think that today the world we live in is so into it and ready for it. It's an enormous blessing. Often I hear criticism of our society and I say to people that there's always room for improvement and we all strive for improvement, but let's not be too hard on ourselves because when I reflect where the world of disabilities was in 1990 when Shalva started and where it is today, it's you can't recognize the two. It's it's an amazing, amazing adjustment, and it's extraordinary the way thinking takes place. And uh, it's amazing how even terms of language have changed. We don't talk anymore about a disabled child. We talk about a child with a disability. The child is first in every discussion. The child is whole. Yes, he has a disability, we recognize that but it has nothing to do with the fact that that child comes first. So I think our communities are focused on making Jewish institutions inclusive. And uh, I think, again, that it's something we can always strive further for, but I think we're so deep into that process. And without giving, I guess, specific examples or uh, naming and shaming, I mean, just from you, from where you've been in the world are there are there places communities you've seen where you thought you know as you're more you know se sensitive to 
these things like do you have you been in shuls or a school where you thought this could be a bit better or they could do this that would make it better are there, are there, are there particular examples that you've seen where you thought this would be great if they did this it's hard to get into specifics but absolutely i have seen endless shuls endless community centers endless other facilities in the jewish world and you see very quickly that some are lagging behind and others are excelling and racing forward but i believe the trend in the last decade plus is that the, every facility and every community organization i believe has this front and center today you can't without it it's part of our lives and it's rightly so and people truly see it as a civil liberties kind of thing civil rights that this is the right of those people to have a opportunity to have a say an opportunity not that we just care for them but if it's about me in meaning if it's about me as a disabled person let me have input into what you're going to do for me and it's a really a blessed changed world in that regard there's always room for improvement but it's wonderful in terms of the direction it's going I mean, to that end, could you uh, speak a little more? I mean, it's difficult in, in an audio uh, medium. We can, again, we can add uh, some photos or, or links to the, the show notes. But could you speak to the current uh, Shalva building, uh, which you mentioned is, is next to Shari Tzedek. It's It's just down the street from Herzl, this huge complex, beautiful complex that Ari and I have both been fortunate enough to visit. Um, I, I think our listeners would be... Uh, thrilled to hear about the the incredible facility that you have there shalva today is probably the largest such facility in the world and serving the largest number of individuals with disabilities in the course of a day and as i mentioned that runs the entire life cycle it's not only from birth to 21 years of age it goes beyond that where graduates uh, and almost graduates are in a vocational training center here where they have amazing tools being given to them um, and they go on to work in Shalva, they go on to work in the broader community. Uh, there are programs designed for these youngsters. There's a magnificent program teaching them how to be not a chef, but chefs teach them how to become someone who can cook professionally and it's an extraordinary course that enables them to ultimately get jobs not doing mundane work but actually doing something very meaningful the shalva center is designed in a way that some ask well i'll tell you an amazing story let's start again the shalva center is designed in such a beautiful way that a well-meaning person from the united states said to me when he walked in the front door and saw the three-story atrium with a beautiful butterfly hanging 20 feet down, his, his remark to me was, Kalman, all this for who? And I said to him, Jack, that's a fascinating question. Let me show you the building and let's have a cup of coffee in the Shalva Cafe afterwards and I'll, then I will address your question. So we went and we saw everything. And when we sat for a cup of coffee, I said, Jack, you asked the question, let me address it. I've been in your community 
in New York. And I've seen your community center and it's a beautiful community center. And as I recall, you have a semi-Olympic indoor pool as we do, a beautiful therapy pool as we do, and beautiful full-size gym and a big auditorium as we do. Why do you provide all those things? And he looked at me and he says, Kalman, it's called quality of life. And I said to him, Jack, who told you that because a mother gave birth to a child with a disability, that she not only has to cope in your book with that disability, she also has to forfeit her right to a quality of life. The building in all its beauty is here to send a message that yes, these children and their families are worthy of every dignity and uh, every facility. And they, our goal is to provide them with quality of life. But in, equally importantly, when we have 150,000 visitors coming through in one year from all over the world, they're all impacted by the size of the campus, the beauty, the, the intricacies of how it works, and it impacts them. And they go back to their countries and we're in constant contact with them. How can we build a multi-sensory room like you have? So Shalva, or whatever they want to do, it, Shalva is not going to be replicated quickly, but Shalva has become a center of excellence where people take pieces of it and incorporate it into their centers. It might be adding more color. It might be facilities that we have. It might be our programs. There's a very, very large church near Washington, D.C. that um, visited, wanted to learn what we did. Even before we were in this center, they came for a week with five people. We shared everything, what we did and how. And they took an interest in the overnight respite program that went back to their community and they created a overnight respite center. And it's been going now probably for 20 years. And it's something they had not thought about, others had not thought about, but it was put into action. Um, looking at individuals, all of us, our listeners, what on an individual level, what can we do to be a part of building inclusive Jewish communities and communal institutions? Uh, I think what we have to do is to try and focus on abilities and think about possibilities as opposed to disabilities. And creating an inclusive society begins from the bottom up. It's the individuals in any community who meet people with disabilities, whether it be their neighbors in the park, public transportation, the way they respond to people with disabilities, that is what establishes the local social standard. And of course, education is key. We cannot expect youngsters or adults necessarily to have the sensitivities and to understand, you know, gee, how should I respond. And people are naturally afraid of things they don't know or understand, which is why we must continue and really educate about the importance of disability inclusion. At Shalva, we start in our inclusive preschools, uh, and it goes all the way up through our programs. We actually have uh, 40 youngsters 
who are typical healthy youngsters in our preschools. Um, we created something called the Shalva Institute, which is there to uh, share all the lessons that Shalva has learned over 30 years. And we do this, of course, with anyone who wishes to learn. And we, at the same time, offer courses in the workplaces. We have courses about inclusion. We train medical caregivers. We have a program with Magenda Vida Dom, where we train their first responders. Because what does a first responder do when he comes to somebody who has a disability? There's no reason that person shouldn't know up front how to handle a given situation. And that includes teaching them how to identify, approach, and include people with disabilities. Uh, Jewish communities can and should create educational opportunities and inclusive interactions that at the end of the day, it's these that will foster positive encounters between people with and people without disabilities. And that in a very organic way is the goal of promoting, you know, their social inclusion. Explain to us uh, just a little bit about what are some of the unique challenges um, that Shalva has faced as a result of COVID, either Shalva as an organization or the families and the, the students of Shalva. Um, how have they been perhaps uniquely affected uh, by the pandemic? COVID or Corona, as it's referred to in Israel, has been, as it is for anyone, an enormous, enormous challenge. Uh, in Israel, um, the government uh, closed down all education, general and special education, sometime in, I believe it was uh, early April. And for the next six or seven weeks, it was closed and it reopened uh, sometime in early June. When it opened, it opened in a very, very strict way with guidelines, of course. And during that six weeks period, we had our staff and our 70 national service girls, uh, as well as volunteers, engaging each and every family as much as they possibly could during the day. You know, we have to think that in Israel, you may have families living in more modest apartments, and you may have a large family. And I, when I say large, it might be five, it might be six, it might be more. But when you have a child with a severe disability, autism or the like, and that child can't sit still, and that child needs activity, and that child has to be walking out, and he can't, they're locked in, the pressure on those parents and on those siblings is beyond so we did everything we could but the day that it opened up again the minibuses started arriving in the afternoon around two o'clock back to shalva and i was there of course and i was in the lobby and when sort of notice came that the first buses were coming a staff and volunteers began moving their way out to accept the children and it was incredible to see that each and every one of them were crying with tears running down their cheeks from excitement as they moved out. On the other hand, I followed them and I saw the youngsters getting off the buses and crying as well. And incredibly, they had the good sense to know that there was a need not to hug at this time and keep a slight distance. But that image has stayed with me 
and made me realize just how incredibly emotional and difficult this has been. Uh, Shalva was open since then, and uh, we've had a number of COVID cases amongst the children, amongst the staff, but we have worked to the letter of the guidelines and kept everybody in what's called capsules so that every set of youngsters and staff are absolutely divided from other youngsters and other staff. So when COVID did hit, a certain number of people were knocked out of the program due to uh, quarantine, but it didn't destroy the entire program. So every day that goes by, it's another prayer that we should be able to get through the day without any more COVID. It, the situation in the households is still very, very challenging. And every day the Chalva is open, I'm told by parents, it's a godsend because that's our shlichut. That is what we are all about. And uh, tragically, the need has become greater than ever. Just a, a, I guess a final question to end on. Jewish values uh, were a core part and inspiration behind um, yours and Marky's founding of Shalva here in Israel. In what ways do you think inclusion is a Jewish value and how might we able, you know, how could we address inclusion from a Torah perspective? Uh, I believe that inclusion is not only a Jewish concept, I think it is a universal concept. Uh, certainly in our Torah, we learn at the beginning that man was created in the image of God. And that was long before the Torah, and in my book refers to all of humanity. Uh, this is so important to understand that while, yes, everyone is able to function cognitively and physically at different levels, but at our root, we are all equal, sharing that spark of divinity, and if you will, infinity. And that is what we have to relate to in any human being, and all the more so with a child with disabilities. Uh, the Torah tells us, educate a child in his way. And I'd like to share a brief story that puts this very, very clearly as to how significant it is. When we were first in New York, my sister, older sister, who was a very well-known psychologist in Canada, visited and she met Yossi for the first time. He was all of possibly two and a half. And she turned to me and said, kid brother, he's not the problem, you are. He is Yossi, but you still have dreams that he's going to be a rabbi like you. He's gonna play ball like you did. He's not gonna be a rabbi and he's not gonna play ball. But as long as you are measuring his accomplishments with your yardstick, he's lost and you're lost. You have to learn to measure your child's abilities with his yardstick. And if he can do only this much, but this much for him is more than another person winning a gold medal for the 100 meters at the Olympics, he says, that is the thing you have to take pride in and accept. And I cried like a baby because I realized how truly right she was. And I realized over the years that it's not only about a child with disabilities, 
It's about every one of our children. We don't measure one with the other one's abilities. And we have to be very careful not to do so, so that we can empower each and every one of our children. So I view that as a very Jewish kind of uh, quality. As we say, educate each child according to his way. Another thing I can think of is very simply, and you shall love your fellow as yourself. Rabbi Akiva said, Zeklal Gadol Betorah. This is a major principle in the Torah. And we all know where there is love, there's a willingness and almost a, a, a desire to seek to facilitate quality of life for uh, our brethren. So I think everything we do, and Shalva, by the way, when people leave here, they always say the quality that they most sense here is love. And they're right. There's no limits to that love. And that's what enables us as Jews and as human beings to help others. And that includes inclusion. On that note, uh, just want to say thank you so much, Carmen, for taking the time to speak to us. Um, as I mentioned when we, when we were speaking before we started recording, um, well, I had the privilege to be able to read your book um, and it's a really, really incredible story from start to finish and just to read about the amazing things that you've achieved and Marky's achieved and Yossi's achieved are just really inspiring and, you know, it goes from, from, you know, ups and downs, the roller coaster. we get to experience that with you in the book and it was really, really incredible. I'd really recommend to all of our listeners to, uh, if you haven't read it yet, to definitely read Carmen's book Um, and just say thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you, and may we always be able to realize dreams that each of us has never dreamed, and all the more so dreams that we do dream. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Amen, and uh, thank you so much, Carmen. That's all for this week's episode of the Corin Podcast. Of course, you can find both the Corin Yachad Sidur. Uh, written and edited by Rabbi Benjuli Boitz, who joined us on our first interview today, as well as Dream Never Dreamed by Carmen Samuels on corinpub.com. That's right. And as always, you can be in touch with us uh, by email, podcast at corinpub.com or on social media at corinpublishers. Uh, and when you do go to corinpub.com, make sure you enter the promo code podcast at checkout for a 10% off your entire order. Uh, and don't forget to send us in your questions for our special upcoming Q&A episode that will be coming later this season. Uh, you can send it by email or message us on social media. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.